like sucking, but I ain't gay. Legit bad podcast. Fuck those honkies. Welcome to another episode of Legit Bat. Uh, I'm Joe, Jen's here, Ben's here, and our guest today is Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and we are going to get into that momentarily. Uh, I, I, you may have noticed we haven't put out a show in a week, and it's not because we weren't doing shows. We went on a couple friends' shows, so you can find us on White Rabbit with Catalyst Jones and Behind the Schemes with Booberry and Lavish. So those are, I mean, if you just can't get enough of our voices, you can go listen to those too, but always a great time with those guys so we're just gonna get right into this if you haven't heard of gary wayne before i'm very surprised if you haven't but we have your book sir and i am so professional that i did not have a chance to read it in the two weeks before the show you read a couple chapters i, I said yeah. when you're done let me read it i'm so excited but and- i'm so, oh, sorry. Yeah. Got it. No, I have. I'm not unfamiliar with your work, and uh, we usually go into these types of things kind of blind anyway, and that's kind of what we do. So I let you do what you do. Introduce yourself and all of your work, and exactly what the gist of your uh, books are about. Sure. So there's no way you'd be able to read the book in two weeks, anyways. Uh, guarantee I found you that. that. Out <laughs> so for people who aren't familiar with my book, it's called The Genesis Six Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind. My name is Gary Wayne. I'm the author. That's my first book. I have another book that will be coming out. We're just working through the probably ending up with a new publisher with the complications, not bad complications, but just wants to move my book to another publisher. So he's representing me right now, maybe to a larger publisher. It's going to be called The Genesis Six Conspiracy Part Two, how understanding prehistory and giants helps to define end-time prophecy. So these are not small books. The first book is over 100 pages. There are 98 chapters, but it's written in a format that every chapter is a mini story that leads into the next chapter that keeps coming up as the book unfolds. So you can read it as fast as you want. Yeah, skip forward, skip backwards. It's uh, written in a way to be able to do that and to use it as, as a research uh, tool. And most people keep it on their shelves as a, a quick, how do I find out about this secret society or what about that ancient culture or whatever this, so that they can get it. So it's an interesting book because it's uh, not one that has been written that's like it. And it's designed to reach into uh, the Christian audience. It's designed to reach over into the Muslim audience, into the Jewish audience, into the polytheist audience, and even into seculars who are interested in mythology and history and all of these things that people have sort of, they understand, but they don't really look at deeper. So this book goes into it, and it's called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy because it kind of starts in Genesis 6 with the creation of the giant. So it centers around that. And if you're not familiar with that, that's the preamble to the flood story. And they're created by the sons of God who are fallen angels to enslave humankind. And so this is a story about an investigation into the House of Dragon, as I like to call them, the original House of Dragon. 
And again, there's a lot of entertainment out there these days that will talk about the House of Dragon. This will give you the sort of the reality to, to that mythos. What that organization and peoples did to uh, usurp power, their organizational structure, how they led the antediluvian epoch into an epoch or an apocalypse of water, how those organizations and people crossed the flood, how they affected our history, what they're doing today, and how they plan to bring about the end time. So it is a 6,000-year connect-the-dots investigation that will take you a while to read and read it at your pace because you will not believe how much information is in this book. I, I, you know, I joke with people that I should maybe have put out a, um, a warning on the book because uh, that has got so much information. If you read it too fast, it might blow some brain cells. So. Read it That's as you can crush it. <laughs> <laughs> Read it as you can digest it, and it never stops coming at you with information. That's awesome. Yeah, I it was so uh, in depth. Even just I was reading through the preface and was like, "Oh man, this is gonna." Because I need to pay attention to this, so it's gonna take me a while to read all of it. But uh, so I kind of when I was describing to Jen, I was like, "It, it seems like kind of a grand unified conspiracy theory. Like it, you tie in yeah. so much, diff so many different things, and it all goes back to the Nephilim or the ancient giants." So what? Where would you start off telling somebody about that? Because that's not really a hugely talked about topic among Christian circles. People like us talk about that stuff all the time. But yeah. are you one from the Book of Enoch as well, or is it just? Genesis. Well, in, in this first book, I pull from all sources. So people like the book, you know, one for its bibliography and two, all of the information that's in there. And I have over 120 pages worth of endnotes. So people can test my veracity and go to my sources. So what I try and do is I try and pull in sources from around the world, whether or not it's ancient religions, whether or not it's historians, whether or not it's different cultures, their mythologies. And I also include the Bible, and I will include the Gnostic scriptures, and I will include like the Book of Enoch, the Apocrypha as well. So it's one of those books that it wasn't, I wasn't really intending to do it that way. Um, but what, what I started to do was just sort of Try and link a story of how, how the heck do these things that pop up in Genesis 6 that just totally knocked me off my pedestal in terms of my insecurities of what this world is all about. I, would, I was just trying to write a, a short, easy book uh, on connecting uh, end-time prophecy with prehistory because there just seems to be a lot of allegory and things that are connected to it, which is absolutely true. So when I started to do the research before I decided what kind of book I was going to write, I started to log all the different prophecy, prophecy narratives in the Bible, and that's a lot. So I had to restart several times and get my systems down and my files set up because it just balloons but you know every time you get through to genesis 6 you read about these giants and i'm going i don't want nothing to do with that whatever that's talking about i'm trying to verify what this one author scared the socks off me with by the name of hal Lindsay, and i just want to verify that he's he's reasonably accurate with what he's talking about and he wrote several books in the 60s and 70s on end time prophecy so when i got around to writing the book i thought well i'll write a short book i want to see whether i can get published i want to see whether or not uh, I can actually write a book that makes some sense. Will some people read it and will people buy it? And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll connect Genesis 6 with with Revelation and it'll be a very easy book. So I wrote first 10 chapters pretty quickly. But um, even though prophecy became my passion, I also had passions in history and had passions in mythology. So I thought, you know what? 
Christians really need to know that there's a parallel story that's told in all cultures around the world in prehistory and a similar story in end time prophecy. Different outcomes and different lenses that are used. One's a polytheist lens, one's a monotheist lens. So then I thought, okay, I'll include that. So I start putting in Greek mythology, Sumerian mythology, Kishimaya mythology, and the Popol Vuh and stuff like that. And then I realized that to give Christians proper context about the veracity to what the polytheist cultures believe, they need to understand the religion. So then I had to read all about the different religions. So like reading everything from the Book of Mormon to all the Gnostic scriptures to the, the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Popol Vuh, all these different types of religions and trying to source, you know, decide what I'm going to use that. But as I did that, I realized there was another organizational structure that was wrapped within those mystery religions, and that's called mystery schools, the teaching of their knowledge cult, and that this was the beginning of secret societies and connected to Freemasonry. In fact, the Masons take their beginnings back to the seven sacred sciences that were divided uh, up as such into seven sciences that we know as the seven liberal sciences today. And that, it's that knowledge that merged with the fallen angels or the gods as polytheism talks about that took that civilization to a level that we're probably just catching up to today. But they considered Enoch their greatest patriarch and that this was the beginning through the mystery schools of their secret societies. And so then I'd learn all about secret societies because I didn't know anything about any of those and i did not realize the size of the rabbit hole that was and so i was yeah. down there for years and it just keeps going and going so then once i tied all of that in then it just was okay i know what i'm doing i don't think i want to do this um because nobody's ever going to believe it but i just sort of kept getting called back and if i if there was something that i needed for information it came to me and it would just tie in perfectly and so i kept going and so that's the story. And then, you know, could I get it published? And getting published is a bigger project than writing the book. So research-wise, probably 30 years, another 10 years of over 10 years of writing and trying to get it published. Wow. How long have you been working on the uh, the second book? And when exactly is that coming out? Well, I don't know when it's going to come out. Um, I had anticipated, I had hoped it would be out for about June, but with the complications with my current publisher who wants to wind down his son has left the company and he's 80 years old uh he will publish it but he feels it'll be better long term for republications for the you know new books and things like that move it to a larger publisher it can give you better distribution and marketing so Probably the fall might be the best case because as, uh, as you get into the larger publishers, you get into a longer queue line for the publishing once they accept it. And you got to go through the marketing, the editing, and all that stuff that goes along with it. So probably the fall, but specifically targeted at Christians for the second book. Nice. Well, we'll definitely be getting our hands on one of those too. And I'll, yeah. you know, and what, and watching. what I found, and what I found from, doing the shows and answering feedbacks on social media or emails or taking questions from the audience is that Christians, they're hungry for this information. And it's so strange that churches don't teach prehistory and they don't teach prophecy. So they don't teach the Bible in the whole context. 
And people are saying, I know there's more to this, but they won't even answer my questions on it. So the second book is for Christians who want to know how much there is on giants in, in the Bible. There's a lot. There's tons that you haven't recognized. What the angels are, their organizational structure, um, all of this crazy language that's in like the book of Revelations with those allegories, they're all defined in prehistory. And uh, I'll, I'll tell a story through prehistory and the giants that will connect into end-time prophecy and give you a chronology for end-time prophecy as well. That's awesome. So, yeah, like you said, there are, I think most Christians or anybody familiar with the Bible have pretty gaping holes uh, full of questions about things that seem to be off or missing, and giants are one of those things. So yeah. what what's your idea on what they are? Because that my understanding is that they are called the sons of God and they were huge, came down and mated with the earth chicks and then produced, I don't know, terrible offspring. I I don't really know. What's your idea on that? Well, first thing is, is we need to separate the sons of God um, from the sons of gods, Um, two different things. So the sons of God are angels um and they're the godfathers they're the ones who create the giants so the sons of god are listed in genesis 6 1 through 4 as choosing human females to create giants as the king james version bible records it other translations will use the word nephilim and so giant goes back to hebrew as a nephil and the i am is the male plural and that's definition that comes along with nephilim are the giant ones the tyrant ones uh, the evil ones and they they're the offspring of angelic beings and human females that created these giants and these are the giants that are known in polytheism as heroes uh, as a- earthly anunnaki the shining ones to Dudanan, the datanu there's a thousand different names it's in every culture um, on Earth, on all continents, probably Antarctica, once we figure out what's going on in Antarctica. <laughs> so I'm speculating that there'll be records in Antarctica, but it just seems logical. And they tell the same story about their gods, which are the fallen angels, which are the Nephilim. Nephil as to fall, which is the root word for Nephil. And they create through human females and human men in some of the cultures, like Greek cultures, giants, female giants, male giants. And they're called heroes. So like Hercules is the son of Zeus and alchemy, as one example. Poseidon created Atlas through Clido, who creates 10 demigod kings for the Atlantis king. So that's just sort of one quick sort of definition. And they call them demigods, which are different than the gods because they're a lower order in that hierarchy as as the physical earthly ones for the fallen Nephilim to rule the earth. And a demigod is defined in ancient ology as the offspring of a god or a goddess and a human male or a human female. So again, everything sort of lines up to what it's talking about in Genesis 6. Now, in the Bible, uh, Nephilim is only used three times. Once in Genesis 6-4, where it uh, describes the creation of these giants who are the mighty ones and the and the men of renown, or in other English traditions, they'll call them heroes of old, just as heroes were giants in, in Greek uh, mythology and history. So it shows up twice in Numbers 13.33 in a report by the Exodus uh, scouts who were scouting 
land of Canaan and they saw the Anakim. And so they were so terrified at the size of these giants that they said the Anakim are the sons of giants. Nephilim is the Hebrew word and it shows up there twice. The thing is, is the Anakim aren't Nephilim. Nephilim is our antediluvian giants. The Anakim and Deuteronomy 2 are called giants, but the word goes back in Hebrew to Raphaim. So post-Diluvian or after the flood giants are called Raphaim. And Raphaim shows up in as an actual word in the King James Version Bible in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. Genesis 14 documents the war of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamian giant kings warring with the land of the covenant and surrounding area giant kings. And then in Genesis 15, when God is promising the land to Abraham from the Nile to the Euphrates, you've got the Raphaim and some other mysterious tribes I won't go into right now. So Raphaim is used, uh, and Rapha is the is the is the singular form. Raphaim with the I am male plural is the word that is used for the two tribes. But Raphaim is used twenty five times in the Old Testament. So when you see the Valley of the Giants, that's the Valley of the Raphaim, for example. So if you see the four brothers of Goliath being called giants, that's the word Rapha and Raphaim as the male plural. One other time does does giant show up, and that's in the book of Job, and that derives from gibberim, which means can mean a giant. It can also just mean strong, and it's used for all sorts of purposes 158 times in the Old Testament in Hebrew, not always for giants. So you can decide whether the usage in Job is accurate or not. But gibberim is the singular gibur, which is the word that's used in Genesis 6-4 to describe the Nephilim, which is the mighty ones. So these were large individuals. They were not six feet tall. They were not seven feet tall. So depending on whether you're talking about the giants before the flood or after the flood is really how big they're going to be. Typically, one would understand giants before the flood, probably 20 to 40 feet tall. Uh, the largest documentation that we get after the flood for them would be uh, from an outside biblical source, let's say out of the Sumerian epic of uh, uh, Gilgamesh or the legends of Itzubar, which is the same accounting, um, or the Ugaritic text where it's talking about Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, sixth generation after the flood, son of Lugalbanda, mother was uh, Nin or Nin son, depending on the translation that you're talking about, a mother goddess. He was 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. So he's the king of Uruk. Josephus, who describes giants biblically, uh, says they should be measured on a royal cubit, which is 21 inches versus 18 inches as a standard cubit. That puts them over 19 feet tall, and it puts them seven feet wide. Now, the these are monsters. These are not just taller. They're not Called basketball players, and they're so they're wide, they're stocky, they're called stout, they're very powerful, perfect war machines. The largest actual giant that's described in the Bible, and there's only one that gives a specific uh, size of a giant, and that's for Goliath. He's six cubits in a span. So if you're using an 18-inch cubit, he would be nine feet nine inches tall. And if you're using a royal cubit, he's 11 feet, three inches tall. So he's going to be twice as tall as the average Israelite at that time. King Og, who's the last of the giants after the flood or the last of the Rephaim, he's in a bed that is four cubits wide and nine cubits long. So that bed is 
using a royal cubit, as Josephus guides us, would be 16 feet tall, just over 14 feet tall if it was a standard cubit. And so that's going to put odd somewhere between 12 and 15 feet tall. And then his bed was you know, uh, seven feet wide at four cubits or six feet wide at 18 inches. So he's going to be four, five, or six feet wide. He's going to be stocky as well. So this is a standard of uh, height to width ratio for them of about two to one versus the standard three to one of a, of a human. So I just wanted to give sort of a quick description without actually giving what they actually look like just from a size perspective when we're talking about giants, whether it's in the Bible or outside the Bible, these were something of a different species. They were hybrid beings of the gods or the hybrid beings and humans of, of angels and humans in the Bible. So how do you figure, real quick, a quick aside, how do you figure giants were after the flood because supposedly everything was wiped out besides Noah and his family. How, how do you think that worked? Yeah. So I think, and I cover some of this often in my, uh, in my first book, uh, I lean towards a second incursion is my favorite position. What we're not told is, is how they show up. We only know that they show up and a whole bunch of different names, whether it's the Anakim that I talked about, or the, the Raphaim, or the Avim, or the Emim, or the Zuzim, or the Zamzuzim, or the Cherithim, or the Pelathim, the Avim, the Hivim, the Hurim. There, there's just an endless list of these giant tribes that show up biblically in the Bible, but they don't show up in the table of nations. And so somehow they show up. So I prefer a second incursion. So if you're understanding mythology, I think it's best to understand it in some of the mythological terms of parent gods and offspring gods. And if you're not familiar with that delineation, it's like Kronos and Gaia are the mother of the, uh, the are the parent gods before the flood at the head of the pantheon. And Zeus is an offspring of Kronos. Right. And, and, and other gods. And so he's going to take over after the flood. So you have parent gods who ruled before the flood, offspring gods after the flood. You have El in the Canaanite pantheon and Baal. Baal is the offspring god. El is the parent god. Uh, in Sumerian tradition, you have Anu. Um, and as I won't go through all of the all of the uh, mother gods, I'll just give the example. But the offspring god of of Anu would be Anki and Anlil. So just as in Egypt, you've got I Isis and Osiris who are offspring gods. They all rule after the flood. Typically, mythology says they overthrew the parent gods. Uh, what was more likely is is the parent gods went. To the abyss they were sent to the abyss for the violations uh against creation for creating these giants and doing horrible things to humanity and after the flood the offspring gods did the same thing so baal would have created the raphaim so when you get to the ugaritic text and it's talking about uh Ashtaroth and baal and they're doing rituals to bring them back to create more because of a fertility issue after the flood as well Baal is the father of these Raphaim, and Ashtaroth is. So it's a second incursion from using sort of a Ugaritic uh, subtext. And they actually use the word Rapium and Rapiu as it's transliterated in the English. It's Old Semitic RPM, which is the vowelless Old Semitic root to Raphaim. And so that's where someone like Goliath would come from then, right? The Raphaim line? 
Well, yeah, he you could read that how it's written in the Bible, whether it's in Hebrew or in English, you could read that that he's the son of a specific giant who had five or six sons, um, depending on how you want to read that at, at the time of David. Uh, or he's of the house of Raphaim or the lineage of the Raphaim tribe. You could read, you could interpret that both ways or both. I think it's both. I think if we, we, we told, we're told that uh, all, all, all the giants, including Goliath, are the sons of a specific giant. And I think he was from the Raphael bloodline, as opposed to those other uh, giant bloodlines that I mentioned earlier with some of their names. So they got some some pound puppy giants. So what what do we have as far as not that I'm asking for proof or anything, but like I know there's claims about finding you know giant skeletons and all that stuff, and it's yeah. always pretty brushed under the rug. So besides ancient texts, what other uh, kind of evidence do we have of these things? Well, we have reliefs of giants uh, that show up all throughout the Middle East and and around the world, and they have a variety of sizes there. Some people think some of those are uh, before the flood with the larger ones. I think they would be um, physical represent. The really large ones would be physical representations of the actual God, whether it's Baal or El um, or Kronos or whomever that you're referring to. So we have those reliefs. We have writings in every culture around the world about these giants. They're all produced in the same way. They're all destroyed in the flood they all are either recreated or somehow survived the flood afterwards and that's getting back to your question earlier maybe i should just quickly touch on that in in, in a second and finish answering that question so you also have discoveries of these elongated skulls right and so if you can imagine um what an elongated skull looks like it's way larger than a human and it's sutureless. Now, you can bind the skull, as what humans did to emulate their demigods, but you can't increase the volume, and you can't take away the sutures. Now, if you look at King Akhenaten as a classic example, Pharaoh Akhenaten, and uh, go visit it at a museum if you really can, because it's absolutely stunning. He is like over a thousand years after the flood, and he's got this big elongated skull and some of it is shown with a big huge hat that's covering it he's also got the this long chin high cheekbones large wraparound eyes and they were called shining ones because those eyes would light up a room and he's got this big elongated skull and he looks like a serpent because a lot of them looked at looked after or looked like some of the serpent gods or angels that would have produced them um, because they had the DNA when they take a physical form and that DNA would be passed on. So uh, we also have, uh, that's just to give you an idea and that's uh, what they look like with diluted bloodlines. And that's something on my screen here for some reason. There we go. It's gone now. You also have discoveries in the last few hundred years. And uh, typically what happens with them is, is they make a discovery of these giant bones, whether it was around the Serpent Mounds and a whole bunch of other places in the United States and elsewhere in the world. They'd call a local university. They come along, they make, document them. They uh, call the Smithsonian. Bones go to the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Institute, and then there's no record thereafter. Or they call the Smithsonian directly. So... 
the Smithsonian they just missed is where it. actual now, history goes to die, from what yes, I've heard. Yes, it goes to die, absolutely. Now, there is a uh, link that if people get a hold of me through my website, I'll send it to them for old what is called old newspaper stories. And it describes the uh, many of these discoveries in these old newspapers, and it's on sort of a spreadsheet. And it describes the size of what they they said the bones were and how big they were and the skulls and things like that and how many there were. And then they provide a link off of that spreadsheet, and it takes you to the actual newspaper article in the newspaper where they discovered it. But as I say, there's no records after it hits the Smithsonian Institute. You've got the Peruvian skulls that were just discovered, uh, which are these elongated skulls. Um, and again, they're sutureless, and they're bigger than humans. And you've got what will they call uparts, out-of-place artifacts in museums all over the world, and they just will not display them. <laughs> and there's records there that they have them, but they won't let you see them. And if they do go on display, all of a sudden they're back off display very, very quickly. So there's a hidden history there that people... Here. What's that? So I'm assuming they don't ever have comment on that, if anybody asks. No, they just say they're not just displayed. not going to put... You know, not going to put them out if if you know a lot of the people that are working out in the front of the museums i mean they don't know what's in the back right but there's a there is a history and a, and a log of the things that they did put in the back in most of the museums so and particularly around the mediterranean they have a lot of these large skulls and bones that uh, they used to put on display up to about 30 years ago and now they just don't hmm. not suspicious at all yeah, you've also you've also got historical records. I won't go through all the historical records, but whether it's in the Roman era, I think that's the most recent ones, and you're getting giants from nine feet to fourteen feet tall in in Roman records. Thracians were were notable for the giants that they would produce in the Roman time. Yeah. So how does that work out? Like, not to jump through like six thousand years or something, but like, how yep. does that work out today? Uh, and we don't see any current giants. Are they living in the earth or something? I like to go crazy well, with this. Some people believe that. That's for sure. And who knows? There, there might be. Um, I, I think for the most part, though, that through having to intermarry, they're, they've had their bloodlines diluted. And they've become more and more human-like through through the generations. So there's a, a term in the Bible that's called the terrible ones that's used. And it's in Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 25 and other passages. Those are the most sort of stunning ones where these are the ones who did horrible things on the earth. These are the kings. They're like uh, the Assyrian and, and um, the king of Elam. And they're talking to the Pharaoh in this dual prophecy from the sides of the abyss prison in Hades or Sheol. And uh, the terrible ones is the Hebrew word erit. And uh, it's this, these are these are giants, and they're described as strong and powerful and evil, uh, evil kings. And the terrible ones are also defined as having uh, a fertility issue that they can't reproduce um, in numbers like they did before the flood. So there's something distinct about post-diluvian giants versus anti-diluvian giants, and that's. The, the fertility issue where they could produce and create numbers amongst themselves. That's why they're doing fertility rituals in the Ugaritic texts because they're getting fewer and fewer in number. Uh, 
and so they have to intermarry with humans to do so. And they like to keep those bloodlines as pure as possible because that's where your noble royal bloodlines, royale, AL is a transliteration and etymologically connected to EL out of Hebrew uh, for an angel or a god. And Roy is king, R-O-I, Old French. And so like Baal is spelled A-L. So you're going to get transliterations of A-L, E-L, I-L, I-L-U, A-L-L-A-H. It's all transliterations of the same sort of word. And so they track their genealogies because the purer that bloodline is, or if more bloodlines are grafted in from other patriarchal original Nephilim and godfathers, gods or fallen angels, then you would ennoble that bloodline and between the purity and the ennobled part is where you fit in the royal culture. And that would be like the black nobility that people would talk about, or rex deus. Those are other terms for the kings of God, rex deus, Latin for kings of God. Um, and so they have this fertility issue where they had to intermarry with humans. So in the Bible, you get like nine patriarchalist tribes showing up in the table of nations in Genesis 10 and first Chronicles. And in that you have uh, nine of them as all part of the Canaanite families, but you do have Canaan as the patriarch that's listed and you have Heth and Sidon that are listed. Then you get these nine that are patriarchalists, like the Amorites, which are connected to giants, uh, probably offspring of the Anakim because they're blonde haired. Um, you've got uh, the Jebusites, and you've got nine of these tribes that aren't listed. So Rephaim patriarchs aren't listed in the table of nations. That's the descendants of Noah. So we get a cross-reference on how this works and assume that those are Rephaim interbreeding because they need to do it because of their, inter their inf infertility issues, and they create hybrid Rephaim and human tribes. So you have a patriarch of the Anakim, who I've, I've already talked about, who are Rephaim, as I've already talked about, whose patriarch is recorded in the book of Joshua as being Arba. And Arba is part of Kiriath Arba, for the city of Arba is what it means. Uh, city Kiriath and Arba is the name meaning four. And it's later named Hebron. But the important thing is, is that Arba, who's the patriarch of the Anakim, is not listed in the table of nations, and neither is Rapha. None of the Raphaim patriarchs are listed in, in the table of nations. And getting back to how, if they survived the flood, how did they survive the flood? Um, you could read in Genesis uh, 6, uh, 6, 7, and 7, 4, where it says God destroyed everything or, or intended to destroy everything that he created. It makes sense from the standpoint that he did not create the giants, but the fallen angels did. So if you wanted to use a legal argument for survival, then you could say, God knew, even when he was bringing about the flood, that the fallen angels who had free choice were going to protect some of these giants and they survive into the post-Diluvian world, which is a sort of a common belief system. So that would happen somehow on an ark, which is the most common. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example. Um, and we know these are giants because they're two-thirds God and one-third human, the offspring of, of, of the Anunnaki. 
Uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, he records the Sumerian flood narrative with Upnapishtim and his whole family, who are two-thirds god, one-third human, and they survived the flood. So it's a giant survival story. And then you have second creation with the creation of Gilgamesh after the flood. So you get sort of both there. So possibly there's both. Um, you could also look at Deucalion and Pyrrha in the Greek mythology as one other example. Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha survive on an ark. Deucalion is the son of Prometheus. So he's a titan or a hero of greek mythology he's a demigod he's a nephilim so it's another giant survival story and so on the ark is the most likely way but with fallen angelic support would be the larger bucket that could mean in the earth as you were mentioning could mean off the earth just as amaka seth in the gnostic gospels is uh, created in a cloud and taken off the earth for survival to be replanted at sodom after after the flood you also have like centaurs being created in in, in clouds so angels have an, have an ability to do this i think though if they were going in the earth it would be in another dimension so into hades or shale which would have been in another dimension so that you wouldn't have to worry about giving them air underground for for the flood or and then the other way is somehow on the ark as a lot of people say and that is usually said by the standard from a christian perspective they, they, they there's a theory that uh there was genes of the giants with the wives and that Gene shows up from the giants with the Canaanites after the flood. Um, you also get Gnostic stories where you have, it could be King Og or it could be Tubal Cain as in the last flood story that we saw hanging onto the ark as a stowaway and one survives to, to start the giants after that. Typically the Gnostics though say, all the sons were giants, and in some of the Gnostic accounts, they say all the survivors on the Ark were, were, were giants. So that's how people get there, that they survive. I think, I'm, I, as I said, we don't have the smoking gun verse on how they show up after the flood. Only biblically do we get their representations. So I'm open to survival, but I lean heavily towards second encouraging because it just fits better with the Bible, and you don't have to sort of bend some scripture or get really legalistic somehow to get there to make that work yeah there's a lot of mental yoga that goes into a lot of this but that's why i love people like you that actually you know research it out and you know come to a, a very logical conclusion but so how does the uh, uh how do the giants end up i don't know organizing themselves enough to be able to come together and have this huge plot to take over the world because they seem like big ding-dongs. I'm not sure, but I mean, giants, you know, big tall dudes are always ding yeah. No offense to any ding-dong tall dudes, but uh, the giants, they don't strike me as the most philosophical of people. So how, how does that start out? Well, they would say that uh, it's the humans are that are the mundane ones in all sort of ways. And that they believe they're superior, not only in size, but in um intelligence uh and that they have contact with the gods who so continually supply them with knowledge and things like that so um i would say and, and as i write in my book that they didn't have the wisdom to go with that and that they let their hubris and their narcissism and their temerity sort of get the better of them 
And again, typically in polytheism, we get that sort of context to that. So if you go to the Greek account, particularly in the Atlantean one by Plato in Timaeus and Critaeus, he talks about these giants that first they're these godlike beings and they're do good, but because they're partly human, it's that mundane human evil aspect that starts to get uh, more control over them and turn them into evil beings and they start doing evil things to everybody and that's why the gods had to destroy them because they were going to destroy the earth. So, but typically they're, they would believe themselves in the and there's also a line of thought when you get into and I don't talk about this in the book, but with RH negative blood, which is thought to be uh, one of the markers for them through the gene of Isis um, or the fairy gene is what they'll call it, or the LB gens, which is one of the main bloodlines of Europe, as is the Julia gens um, in the Italian bloodline is that it's the gene that produces the RH negative blood because you can't add a bloodline. If it's missing something, like it's missing a D antigen, so how do you add something if it's missing something, right? That's the difference between positive and negative. One has the D antigen, the other one doesn't. So it's the it's the gene that you have to focus on. And but it's the blood Rh negative that sort of manifested from those genes. And that people with Rh negative I have a great document for people on this if they want to get it. They believe they have 140 plus IQ. They have red hair, mostly, and blonde hair, hazel eyes, and blue eyes, mostly. Uh, they have more interaction with uh, ghosts. They have more interaction in everything that's sort of occult, sort of driven. There's a whole list of characteristics there for them that sort of fits the whole dynamic. And when you start to understand that the original giants, they had blonde hair or blue eyes, black hair, and brown eyes, and which is more the Sumerian variety and a lot of the ones that show up in, in Greece. And then you have the red hair and hazel-eyed ones. So Atlanteans had the, uh, the red hair, blonde hair, hazel eyes, and blue eyes as, as their descriptions. And so, again, you, you sort of start to get too many coincidences to think that, hey, maybe there might be something to that. Uh, but certainly the royals, like for the Windsors, for example, are O-negative. And that's the the number one sort of Rh negative blood. It matches with everything, and it's considered the superior blood type. Interesting. I know I've heard a lot about uh, you know different theories on the Rh negative thing, but I mean, th they actually have documented studies out there on this kind of thing, or is it just yes. kind of, uh, okay? Yeah. So what's interesting is that the the highest there's only about fifteen percent of the population that has Rh negative blood. And as you get into certain pockets in geography around the world, you get a higher concentration. So in France and in England, you get a higher concentration of Rh negative bloodlines. So um, you get as high as 25% in those pockets of Rh negative. But there's one group that has 50 to 80% Rh negative, and these are the Basques. Um, and the Basques have another mythology around them that they call themselves Homo Atlantis. You can't make this up. <laughs> you could, but you'd have to be crazy to, <laughs> to make all of this up. So they call themselves Homo Atlantis, and they believe in their uh, history and mythology that they started after the flood, the Egyptian civilization, the Sumerian civilization, the Scythian 
civilization where most of the giants sort of come from after the flood. Uh, and then uh, they migrated to southern France and northern Spain. And like I say, they have as high as in some of the samples as 80% Rh negative. And they believe they have the most purest strain of the giants from before the flood. Now, there was a diaspora there because you get this these rivalries in the bloodlines of the royals and the uh, the bloodlines that sort of migrated out of the Middle East and settled into Europe that produced most of the kings, whether it's the Anjou bloodline or the Hanover bloodlines, they basically pushed the uh, Basque bloodlines out and in sort of a persecution. And that's why you have a diaspora of them around the world. It was a power play. And uh, that's not uncommon in these bloodlines. And when you start to get back into the bloodlines and what they do uh, in terms of trying to grab power, it starts to make sense of history and it starts to make sense of recent history as well. Yeah, that's that's why I can't wait to actually delve into this and get you know all the details on that. But um, how I'm trying to figure out how to frame the next question, but how do you... How do you think this all happened? Like, what's the end goal? Is it is the goal revelation? Because there's a lot of different ideas on revelation. And some people think it's all astrotheology. It's all a star story. There's other people that think it's already happened. I know a few people yeah. that think it's already happened a, a thousand years ago. Um, what do you think the end goal is with these people that control the world? Well, they're, they were created to ensure humankind did not reach their destiny of being raised up to be like fallen angels. So it's the fallen angels who create these giants to try and have humankind, the Adamites completely wiped from the face of the earth. Their names blotted out of the book of life that was written from before creation. And so if you backstep one step further, that's a reaction to the Adamites being created who were created as a resolution to the angelic rebellion. So the end time is a resolution to the angelic rebellion. And at the end of the end time, um, you have a, most of the significant resurrections for immortality to be raised up like angels that will be taking place because you have a sequence of resurrections. You have Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who are asleep and the first fruits. Uh, and then you have the resurrection of those who refuse to take the mark. You have the resurrection of Israel all happening uh, in, at the end of the last three, three and a half years or close to the end with the resurrections of, of Israel. Um, and at the end of the book of Revelation or the end of uh, Jesus' oration on the chronology of end-time prophecy, you have the end of the angelic rebellion. So as in Matthew 25, their destination is the lake of fire. Just as Satan will go there, but not before he spends a thousand years in the abyss. And then after that, he is going to be released and there's going to be one more rebellion and then Satan will go to the uh, to the lake of fire. So you have most of what's going to happen before the future that's going to happen in the fig tree generation as Jesus lays it out. But then you have another thousand years and then you move on into eternity. 
But this is all designed to let all the names that were, that were written in the book of life to have a chance to choose. Angels have free choice. They chose to uh, follow God or not. Humans have that choice as well. So everybody will have that choice um, before we get to the completion of the, the fig tree generation. Now, getting to your question about Revelation, yeah, it, it is the most misunderstood book in the Bible, maybe in the world. <laughs> um, it's not that complicated. Um, you do have to understand that the allegories are defined in uh, the Old Testament. For me, I was like a lot of people trying to figure out how do I fit all of these prophecies together and make them fit and have them make sense. And I noticed a couple of things is that a lot of people like to leave out inconvenient prophecies, passages. If it doesn't fit their preconceived conclusion, they just sort of ignore it. And so if you don't know all of the prophecies, you start to start to get confused and you say, well, how come there's so many different approaches and how come there's different timelines for everything? And how come everything contradicts itself? Well, it doesn't contradict yourself if you follow one simple rule and then add a few a few more in behind, but it, the key one is, is put all prophecy around what Jesus said in the chronology that he put down and set down in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21. He gives you a chronological order. He uses the word then, and that is not an inserted word. It has not been mistranslated. It means exactly that when you take it back to Greek, which is the Greek word toda. And it's used to say, then this happens, and this happens, and this happens. And in the middle, he gives you the abomination of the last seven years. Daniel 9.27 is the seven-year covenant in the fig tree generation, but there's a specific seven years. So if you put all of the end-time prophecy around his chronology, everything starts to make sense. And if you look at the book of Revelation, you can go from Revelation 6 uh, I'll, I'll leave the throne part and the churches as sort of a separate part of the Revelation prophecy, but with the opening of the seals, that's in and around the start of the last seven years. And that if you go from there to Revelation 14, say about seven, that's the first three and a half years. And then you get a summary of the last three and a half years. And then you get the details of the last three and a half years in Revelation 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. And then you get the millennium. So, all of a sudden, everything starts to fit. Trouble is, is it blows up all of the preconceived theologies or eschatology on it. So that, you know, the rapture people have preconceived conclusions when, when that's happened. So they do that contortion with the Bible, in my opinion, to make it work. Just follow what Jesus said. But all prophecy around what Jesus said, not vice versa, all the contradictions go away and you'll see a, a very easy sort of chronology. And then it doesn't matter what prophecy that you read in the old Testament or wherever you'll know where it fits in. Yeah. The rapture thing is always funny to me because, you know, Christians argue about pre-trib post-trib uh, whether there's a rapture or not. I, as far as I know, the rapture is not even in the Bible, right? It's kind of a, like I said, mental yoga with some of the verses to be like, oh no, you know, we'll, we'll all be disappeared. Like in that movie series, uh, Left Behind, they did a great job of portraying that idea. But what do well, you think you, about that? Well, thing? you can connect rapture back through the Greek uh, words. 
So you're right. In in the English language, you don't get the word rapture there, but you get the description of rapture there. Right. So um, and so just as when you get the re- resurrection sequence, when Jesus comes, those who are asleep and those who are still alive, he's coming for. And then you get other verses that are going to have people when he comes at the last trump will be instantly transformed in a mystery into heaven with their new bodies. So, and again, I won't go through all of them, but you're going to get multiple passages uh, before, uh, you know, multiple passages that are describing those those sets of events. So, again, people want to get a hold of me on this. I've got some documents on it. I won't spend two hours on all of the theology. I'll explain where the word rapture comes from, how that goes back to Greek, how that comes back into the into the Bible. And I can give you... A ton of information on rapture. I have a large 50-page document that sort of covers all of the rapture narratives because there's a lot. And again, don't you can't leave out inconvenient passages. That's the key, and it's all got to fit. So, and one of the things that gets people really confused, whether it's rapture or timing, is they confuse tribulation with wrath. They're two different Greek words, and you have to understand them. Um, in the application that they're intended for and that they're not the same thing. The wrath is the year of the Lord's wrath and it happens in the last year of the last seven years. And then you've got a few different kinds of tribulations. Uh, You've got the great tribulation, um, which is in the last three and a half years that happens after rapture. And then you have uh, the tribulation of the saints that show up in Revelation 7, those ones that the people in Revelation 6 are told to wait for, to be martyred for the testimony of Jesus like they are. And that's the affliction that Jesus is talking about as it's translated into English. That's the Greek word Philippis, which is the same word that translates tribulation. So if, if the translators were consistent, Matthew 24 would say not afflicted, but it would be tribulation. And we know it's the same application because when you get into the Great Tribulation, which is the Great Tribulation not seen since the creation of the world, um, that is the same word that is used in Mark's account where it's called affliction. And it's the same Greek word. So it's, and then you, and and when you look at Revelation 7, it says the tribulation of the saints uh, that are martyred, that's again the, the same word. But I'd also warn people that. There's going to be tribulation before the last seven years. So Revelation 2.10 talks about 10 days of tribulation or 10 years of tribulation as you match up Daniel and Revelation with the definition of a day as a year and the week of years of seven days of those. You'll have 10 years of tribulation. So there's tribulation before, and that tribulation happens all throughout the fig tree generation. It just gets stronger as it progresses, as do all of the sorrows. Interesting. So what is exactly the fig tree generation? What does that represent? Yeah. So in in Jesus' chronology, he gives three overarching signs to uh, the fig to uh, his his coming, because the disciples ask him, When when will you be coming? What will be the signs of it? And what are the major events? Is what they're asking. So he provides the sorrows at the beginning, when he's talking about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, famine. And those are the beginning of sorrows that are in this generation that we'll get to here in a second. And they'll get stronger. So as, as you get through that generation, those catastrophes begin to work together. 
and get stronger. So by the time of the seal openings, it's 25% destruction of the whole world at around just after the opening of the last seven years. And then you have the trumpets, which is 33%. And then you have the wrath bowls in the last year of the last seven years, which would be 100% destruction unless Jesus stepped in. So that's one of the overarching signs. The major overarching sign is the fig tree generation, where Jesus said, when you see the, the, the fig tree in bloom, know that it's the season and that this generation will not end until all these things I have talked about have been completed. The earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's pretty strong that this is a specific generation. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And then, and then the third overarching signs is it's going to be like the days of Noah. Uh, and so we need to factor that into it, which is part of the understanding the prehistory. So how long is a generation? That's one of the key questions. So in the book of Exodus, it's 40 years, as we're told, is a generation. In the book of Psalms, we're told 70 years. And in Genesis 6, 3, 120 years. So we don't know. So even within that generation, we have to be very, very careful as to how long that generation is and what is the thing that starts off that specific generation, the godless generation, as the book of Timothy talks about. And so what we do know about what would tick it off is, is that not only does the southern kingdom have to be back in the land of the covenant, that's the people of Israel as we understand them, but they also have to control Jerusalem. And that happened in 1967. So a lot of people like to use 1948, if we are in the fig tree generation, and I think we might be, then sometime 40, 70, or 120 years after, you would get into the last seven years. So I think it's likely 70 to 120 based on the math, if, if nothing else, if we're indeed in it. So we have a way. So right about here, our internet cut out, and I'm very sorry, but this shit happens. So anyway, we will continue. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, thanks for uh, jumping in there, Ben. Our internet just decided to go haywire and booted. None of it recorded. My own meeting. Yeah, I imagine it probably didn't. That's yeah. great. So sorry, listeners. Where were we at? What were you guys talking about? Big tree generation. <laughs> okay, cool. I don't uh, know. I don't know at what point it it kicked off. Uh, I I did I did notice you guys weren't moving as I was talking, but I thought you were just being super professional hosts. <laughs> no, no. So no, we no. we could see each other moving, and then we noticed that you were both frozen, but you sounded fantastic. I could hear everything you were saying, but you were frozen, and we're like, we've got like probably fifteen seconds before we don't hear anything. Unfortunately, <laughs> we Sorry. talked about technical difficulties before the show, and look what happened. I swear. Yes. Well, I think there's something with the solar flares lately. We've been losing our internet every single day for the last week and a half. Wow. Every day for a long wow. time. Our office has all of my friends have. I, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, continue. So I don't know whether I finished before it wasn't recording on on the fig tree generation or not, but it is one generation. Well, 
We're probably in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, every time I hear somebody describe the end times, it's always the, uh, you know, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. I'm like, yep. you mean like all of history that, cause that, no, no, this is because it's, it, it has to be linked to the political agenda as well. And it has to get stronger. So, you know, there's going to be a world government. Most people connect that in. They don't connect in. There's going to be 10 Kings. And they're going to have 10 empires around the whole world. So there's going to be groups of nations. So this is only going to come up about through these Soros. So until we get that in place, we can't have the last seven years. There's going to be a universal religion imposed. So until we get that in place, we can't have the last seven years. So if we are in the fig tree generation, we're starting to see sort of the lead up to that. So what's interesting is, is that, you know, a group called the Club of Rome, and they were created in the 1960s, the answer into the Committee of 300, divided the world up into 10 groups of nations, right? And that's their, why they were created was, is to create scenarios to facilitate this uh, migration to these 10 groups of, of, of empires. And some of the things that they came up with was overpopulation. So these are things, to, apocalyptic things to drive people or cattle herd them into world government. Global warming was their invention as well. Um, they have a whole bunch of uh, peak oil was a, another one of theirs. So again, everything is just to sort of drive chaos. But you also have the United Nations who have the world divided up into those same kind of zones. You also, as if as you mentioned, if you remember when we we're talking about Atlantis, is that they were the uh, considered the helm of world government in the antediluvian epoch. They were the greatest civilization that were trying to conquer the whole world in the accounts by by Plato and Critias and Timaeus. They were led by ten demigod kings, sons of Poseidon and and Clito. You have. Uh, the inspirational founder of the Royal Society, um, the Invisible College, as it's it's like to be called within the craft. Uh, they consider themselves the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. And uh, his painting hangs in that entrance to that uh, head office in London as the inspirational founder to that. He wasn't you know, it wasn't alive when it was founded because it was founded in 1662. It was created to be the start of science outside of the church, education outside of the church, and all organizations answer to that today. Well, Bacon wrote a story called The New Atlantis, where you have this universal religion that works in harmony with uh, science. This is the old Gnostic Enochian mysticism religion of the Antiluvian Epoch. As you remember at the beginning of the show, I said that the secret societies came out of mysticism and came out of those seven sacred sciences, right? And mysticism comes out of the seven sacred sciences. So this is the, the religion that is uh, promised for the end of the world. And he uses the word Atlantis because they view the new coming world as the new atlantis or the new age as we would understand that in the new age philosophy and what's interesting about that is in the book of daniel in the metallic empires in daniel 2 you have 10 kings 
of the end time empire. Um, and you have those seven years and you have an abomination in the middle of those seven years. So the people who like to say the first three and a half years or all of it has already passed. These events haven't happened yet. We haven't seen Ken Kings ruling the whole earth. You don't have the events of Antichrist rising the power in the first three and a half years that's recorded in Daniel 11. So again, be very careful about preconceived likes to ignore inconvenient passages. Um, and then in Daniel 7, you have the seven horns and the seven kings, and it matches up with the ten kings in Revelation 12, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17 for this end-time empire that's going to be controlled by the universal religion. But it's interesting, though, that organizations that, and the Club of Rome answers into the Committee of 300, as does the Royal Society, as does the Davos crew and the G20 that was with the or the B20 that was with the G20, they all answer into the committee of the 300, which is higher than the Rosicrucians. Um, you have uh, this new Atlantis with these 10 kings and all the numbers are the same. And the whole ideology is, is how do we get into this world government with these 10 groups of nations that they have planned? So it sort of all sort of fits together and where we're going, but you got to get there first. So you're starting to see that jockeying for position. You know, you saw the Brexit thing. I think that's leading to whatever, wherever Britain's going to end up in there. You have uh, Russia, who is now starting to reassert his bloodline um divine inheritance as he would he, he would uh define himself as a bloodline descendant of the uh Putyan and bloodline out of kiev the original czars uh, from where his name comes from and uh, that's another rabbit hole we can get into that if you want you've got xi of china who is starting to start his bloodline dynasty uh xi comes out of the xia dynasty and that's spelled X-I-A, just as G's last name is X-I, it's the short form of Shah as it's pronounced. The Shah dynasty, and he's from the Western bloodline, the Shah dynasty was the bloodline empires that come from the dragon serpentine creator gods both before and after the flood and ruled until social masonry was created that was not only launched on the Kievan uh, bloodline czars, uh, the Romanovs were a junior branch of the Putyanin, but the Kaisers fell through Nazism, which is social masonry. And you also have that set on communist China to bring down the Li or the, the Xi bloodlines of, of, of China, but they're starting to reform. You're starting to see more of these alliances start to happen. So when you get a war that happens before the midpoint of the last three and a half years, that's going to look like Armageddon. It won't be, but it'll look like it. And Antichrist will say that's his Armageddon as part of his pedigree. You have the God War in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You start to look at some of those alliances that are in there. And you have Gog uh, of Magog, chief prince of Meshech, with Meshech being um, the etymological route to the city of Moscow, uh, and he's the leader of this alliance. You've got the Aryan, or the Persians, which are the Indo-Aryans, and that would include 
the Aryans who settled in India today, so modern state of India, and also the Persian kings, like the Achaemenid kings, were Persians by their bloodline descent. Uh, th that's Iran, Iraq, that area today, and India is is has not uh, stood up against what the Russians are doing and continues to support them more because they get all of their oil and their gas from from Russia. You see that movement starting to happen and they're coming closer together what's happened in the last six or eight months with, with China. Then you have Gomer, which is part of that alliance, and that would be modern-day Germany. And Germany is is going to have to go with the Russians because that's where they get all of their oil and their natural gas from. So they're, they're going to have... Uh, a group that's going to include Beth Tagarma, which is the modern state of Turkey, who are going to split away. You're going to have a, I think you're going to have, my speculation is you're going to have a central group of Europeans that are going to go with that five king alliance of one of the feet, as in Daniel 2. And then you're going to have five Western groups of nations sort of split. And you see that starting to set up. They've got their own world banking. That's why all of the banking sanctions didn't work. They're developing their own digital currency. They have their own credit cards. They're now demanding people buy everything in their currency. You're starting to see that start to set up. It's just going to look different than what the European bloodlines had envisioned this 10 king empire is going to look like and so xi and putin aren't saying they don't want this nephilim world order they're just saying they want a larger role in it and they're going to take a larger role in it so i never ask anybody to be uh and we'll, we can wind down at, in a couple minutes here because I, I think my internet's a ticking time bomb and uh, <laughs> yeah. i want to leave on a good note at least but sure. i never ask my guests to you know give dates or be prophetical at all because yep. first of all i don't really trust those people yeah but, don't uh, give dates yeah <laughs> but i like to ask their opinions though so what's your yes. opinion on the mark of the beast there's some people that think it's a tattoo yeah. That's kind of yeah. outdated at this point. Some people think it's a chip. Other people think it's straight up digital currency, digital, digital ID. So knowing what we know now, what do you think about that? Well, it's still developing. And lots of what people have said is going to be part of it. Uh, I mean, the UPC system is still in place. And, uh, you know, you still have those three sixes that aren't part of it. But there are several lanes of technology that haven't come into that sort of nexus point yet. So... You're going to have a system that has to have AI and quantum computing involved, and you're starting to see that sort of merge together. So let's say at CERN, for example, you have them working. It has to work in different dimensions, and it has to be able to search multiple dimensions. It has to be able to deliver things from all the different dimensions to supply the knowledge and the immortality that people are working for. You're going to need a digital currency that's going to work in combination with that, and they're going to have to also resolve on that, that if it's the current cryptocurrency, the geomancy that goes into that, quantum computing mixed with AI can take that security away. So they have to build in something else that's going to be into that uh, mark of the beast system. But it's going to control everything that moves in the world, every transaction. And the universal religion is going to grow rich from this, as will the, the Ten Kings, as, as Revelation talks about. And they're going to take a tribute on every transaction. And it's all going to be digital. It sounds a lot like blockchain, right? And I'm sorry, people that love crypto, yes. I don't understand it, but that sounds like blockchain to me. Well, yes. And now he's starting to see the digital passport, another um, 
line of technology line up and in the at the b20 and the g20 and then again at the davos they're doubling down on on the the medical passport for the world as a replacement for the old paper passports that they want to have uh the alibaba technology in china as its base technology which is built on all social credits and blockchain uh, ideology and that would also match up with as they see down the road moving in the digital currency into that platform just as all the federal reserves as of last november have started to, to take control and be more interested in the digital currency because they do see it's developing to a level now that they could probably make this work but when you have blockchain cryptocurrency and all those other technologies that are coming together you never destroy that information. It follows you so that you, down the road, if you want to go to a movie, if you don't have enough social credits, whether it's carbon footprint and they want to track that in the digital passport as well, that's all coming together. And it's going to come through an implant system, or at least according to the Davos crew, as in 2017 talked about, through the healthcare system, because people are going to demand the ability to get vaccines through it and for immortality and so if you start to see these catastrophes coming together with larger pestilences people are going to demand this implant system that's going to be part of this whole they'll use a lack of a better uh, term because i don't have one for it um, where you have a cloud technology today let's call this a super cloud central technology that all of this is going to be patched into that's going to work interdimensionally to access something that they call the divine essence that's understood in hinduism in the vedas and the upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita as the atman or the atma particle that contains all knowledge that's an invisible particle they want to find this particle access it because it merges with a particle that you could you can measure, and then it sends that information in all dimensions instantaneously through quantum entanglement. They need that to provide godhood, and they need that to provide the immortality that comes along with the mark of the beast. So it's going to be a super system. It's still developing, but it's going to do all of the basic things that we're told it's going to do in, in Revelation 13. Yeah, and there's a, been a, countless movies about that kind of idea too—a a supercomputer that's running everything. And but I, I, I got one more question, and then we can yep. wrap. Up. Uh, it's a two-parter, but it's real easy. So, first part: Do you think the Antichrist lives among us now? And two, if he does, what are your top three candidates? Hmm. Well, interesting you chose that number because the royal families, at least of the Europeans, uh, they keep three ready all, all, all the time um and well, so for numerology 333 yeah, yes yeah so and they just they want to be prepared but one also deduces from there that there are bloodlines that are competing for that and, but there can only be one right and you're going to have bloodlines from all over the world that are competing so you're going to see if you take it out of the Eastern religions, you've got like Lord Maitreya or the new Buddha as an incarnation of Vishnu. That's part of their end time prophecy. You've got the Makti of both the Shia and the Sunni. Jesus said there will be many antichrists. Gog, as it's as it's shown up in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you take that back to its original Greek and it is, you know, defined as it is it as and as an end time antichrist figure 
So and we talked about that as being for the uh, counterfeit Armageddon war that happens before the midpoint that Antichrist needs to rise to power on. We're going to have multiple Antichrists. And Jesus said there'd be multiple Antichrists, just as that's also recorded in the epistles of John. So we need to be prepared for many. And we can't be pointing at every new president that comes along and saying he's the Antichrist. You just lose all credibility, right? So or Elon Musk or whatever. Yeah. Not enough people like Elon Musk. So, I don't think for him isn't to... that isn't that you kind said, of yeah. Oh, sorry. Isn't that kind of part of the reverse psychology plan though? Is that everybody starts pointing at everybody saying yep. they're the Antichrist so that yep. everybody else just goes bullshit. Yep. And then they find out way too late the actual one was there and it's, he's already moved to spider-man yeah everybody yeah. so so i would be wary i mean so you do have some families that have bloodlines that you know just sort of stand out so obviously the windsor family king charles the third maybe his son william uh might would be very very good candidates i mean they have hanover bloodlines from germany that connect back to vlad the impaler and vlad the impaler takes his genealogy back to the agrathy tribe of scythia which was created through you guessed it <laughs> maybe you didn't but hercules and elkmane that uh, produced that tribe um so they have these genealogies uh the anjou families you have to be very careful of um there's one anjou line that uh is uh, uh holds the king of jerusalem title today um and that is um the king of spain uh king philippe Corbo and has uh, inherited it from his father Juan Carlos and that came to him through the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty um, of Austria through through marriage and generations uh, there's two rivals to the Anjou king of Jerusalem title um, that is von Habsburg who says in their golden fleece order and they have these bloodline royal orders of of the royals the golden fleece is sort of allegoric for the material that was used to make the clothing of the gods. And uh, the third Anjou, king of Jerusalem, claim comes from the Savoys, also Anjou, the king of Naples, king of kings of Italy. They all have separate bloodlines of the Anjou who claim this king of Jerusalem title. King of Jerusalem title was awarded to uh baldwin ii in 1118 in a small priory in jerusalem and baldwin ii was anjou um there were three main founders of the knights templar um in in 1090 to 1099 anjou was one of them focal anjou that is uh uh a member of, of his family, Baldwin II. You had de Bouillon, who was an Anjou out of Lorraine, and de Pan, who was an Anjou out of Lorraine. Those three families of Anjou took their bloodlines from the last survivor of the Merovingians, Dagobert, um, who took their bloodlines back to Nephilim bloodlines, to Davidic bloodlines, allegedly Jesus, Mary Magdalene bloodlines, and also back to King Saul, who was a Benjamite, who Jerusalem was awarded to the Benjamites in the time of the Exodus. So they claim that Jerusalem title by divine inheritance. So I would also look for a Stuart bloodline that might surface as well. Uh, for the noble bloodlines there. Uh, but as I say, you have to also look into other areas as well. 
because we don't know where he's going to come from. Daniel 8 would suggest out of the Greek Empire, but the Greek Empire was basically the size of the Roman Empire. So it imp included the Roman Empire, included the Greek Empire, it included the, you know, Egypt, it included, you know, Persia and Assyria and places like that. So, you know, because that horn comes from, you know, uh, the Prince of Greece, which is, is, which is Alexander, maybe it's Greece, but it could be through intermarriage anywhere right so yeah. we have to be careful with that but those would be some of the major bloodlines i would be aware of and none of those bloodlines are what people think are the bloodlines in in in, in america um it's not the rockefeller bloodlines it's not the duponts those are pseudo bloodlines they are lower level they're just trying to intermarry to have future generations have a have a higher place it's the old bloodlines and then you've got the Julia Gens as well, out of the black nobility that takes their bloodlines back to uh, Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus, but all the way back to Romulus and Remus as the Nephilim offspring of Greek gods and uh, the royals that you know produce the, the old Senate bloodlines. So there's lots of rivals. Yeah, I, I always think it's funny when you know people like to point fingers at Rothschilds or Rockefellers or uh you know any kind of secret society anything like that i I, yeah. I think it's it's probably halfway true but it's kind of misguided because they seem like pawns and puppets to me they and they're, I don't, and they're too visible yeah exactly i, I always say uh, you don't know the names of the real people yeah. the real entities behind this yeah well and the rothschilds they were put in business by the royal masonic um societies to replace the banking uh that was brought down uh with the taking a part of the Knights Templar in 1307. So they needed to replace that banking outside of the church. So a family in Germany was funded. Their name was the Bauer family. And then when uh, they set up the uh, London Bank in uh, about 1800, um, they changed the name from Bauer to Rothschild. So again, those are you know, more Jewish bloodlines, but intermarrying uh, bloodlines into the uh, the older royal bloodlines yeah and there's so much of this stuff that i mean we're just probably never going to know but i i'm glad to have you as a uh, a tribulation mate because if i start seeing a bunch of locusts outside or the moon turns to blood i'm gonna call you and be like dude i think i think we're onto something here it's happening <laughs> now it's happening well yeah, tell everybody where they can find all your work and everything else you do and uh stay tuned for his new book but do you have a, a website or instagram or you know any kind of social yeah so the best way to get a hold of me is through my website that's the genesis six conspiracy.com that's genesis six with the number six conspiracy.com and on that website if you want to get a hold of me if you go to the uh, media page and where it says contact Gary wayne for uh an interview it's highlighted that's my email um, and you can ask me um, a question or tell me some of your thoughts or if you I, I tend to give out a lot of documents. So when I was talking about Putin or Xi on their bloodlines, for example, I have documents on that that I supply at no charge You can just ask by subject what you're looking for. If I have a document, I will send that to you. It might take me a while to get back to you, but I will get back to you. I have a, a continual incoming um box of emails every day so it takes me a while to, to get through them and i am running a little bit behind i also have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on uh, my website of my current book um, and even though there's a generous excerpt it is a 
drop in the bucket as to what's in in the book but you'll get a good feel and i think you'll find the uh table of contents interesting in itself and uh so if you were liked what i said today or you wanted to check out my book and you wanted to buy a copy and you wanted to sign copy you can go to the buy now page if you're in Canada, there's a Canada page. If you're in the U.S., there's a U.S. page. And for the rest of the world, there's an overseas page. If you wanted to link over, and you can do this from the front page or from the Buy Now page to the uh, get the digital version, you can uh, click on and get uh, the Kindle from Amazon. You can also link over from the website to barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and amazon.ca. So that's the fastest, easiest way to get a hold of me or to get a hold of my book. Awesome. Sounds good. And we'll definitely be looking out for that new book. And if anybody's interested in these kind of topics, seriously, get the book. I think there was like 200 pages just of citations in bibliography. I looked at the back. I'm like, wow, just the bibliography and the citations is several pages long. So, you know, he knows what he's talking about with his research. All right. Well, we will wrap that one up. Thank you so much for bearing through the technical difficulties. Uh, you know, it happens, especially on this show. But we will talk to you guys next time. I believe our next show is Thursday. Wait, no, Sunday. I thought today was Sunday. Yeah. Anyway, have a great night, everyone. Yeah.